Many hoped we would be done with COVID-19 by now, but the pandemic is stretching into another year, and any hopes for herd immunity fade as pockets of resistance dot the country and the globe. What does it mean when we hear COVID is a forever virus? Well, epidemiologist Larry Brilliant worked with the World Health Organization to end the smallpox pandemic. He was also tapped as a scientific consultant for the 2011 film Contagion. The drama is about a deadly virus from China that, like COVID, spreads silently and quickly. Brilliant has been working with Big Island officials in their effort to contain the virus. He tells us Hawaii has a special place in his heart given its history. Brilliant has been coming to the islands since the 1960s. The reality that COVID is going to be with us for a very long time doesn't mean that the COVID that we know now that sucks all the oxygen out of the air, that's the first thing we think about, that makes us impossible for us to meet with our family. We can't go into the hospital unless you're sick and then the hospitals are overrun with patients. This kind of a COVID isn't going to be forever. And there's a lot of forever viruses. Measles is a forever virus. Yellow fever is a forever virus. Smallpox was a forever virus until we eradicated it. It is a category of viruses that we can't eradicate. And in the case of COVID, it's already in 12 animal species, so we can't eradicate it. And we're unable to reach herd immunity with our uh, our vaccinations. And that's really sad. We we had a couple of chances to nip this um, pandemic in the bud, and we failed to do it. We failed to stop the virus in Wuhan uh, during Chinese New Year, and instead millions of people left Wuhan carrying the virus all over the world. And we failed to stop it when it arrived in those countries, especially in the United States, when when Trump uh, made light of it and, and, and said that it was a fraud or didn't, didn't take the proper seriousness, proper action. But Trump wasn't alone. Many countries didn't take it seriously. And now we have it everywhere in the world. And so it will be with us for a very long time. How do we use this experience to plan for the next one? A variant of COVID that eluded our vaccines, eludes our treatments, eludes our testing, reinfects people who've had it before. That kind of a variant is almost functionally the same as a a new pandemic or a novel virus. And every year we have three to five novel viruses that human beings haven't had before that jump from animals to humans. There have been perhaps 30, 40, 50 of them in the last eight, nine, 10 years. And some of them are viruses that when they leap into human beings, they find a fertile soil, so to speak. Uh, uh, H1N1 recently, uh, Ebola, Lassa fever, Marburg, Uh, Zika, West Nile, we can go on and on. All the coronaviruses, MERS, SARS, and COVID. These new viruses, new to human beings anyway, they will continue to jump from animals to humans because humans are now living in animal territory. We're pushing the boundaries, cutting down the rainforest and chopping down other forests to grow soybeans. And I was the science advisor on a movie, Contagion, the last scene in Contagion tells the whole story. Soderbergh cleverly keeps that to the ending, but it's cutting down, clear-cutting a a forest and a bat, losing its habitat, moving into a domestic habitat, getting into a barn, and then dropping an apple that it had been eating with its saliva, with its viruses on the ground. A pig eats it. Uh, The pig is picked up by a cook. The chef is cutting the pig to make dinner and shakes hands with blood on his hand to Gwyneth Paltrow, who then gets the first case. And that that cadence, that, that story is all too real and prescient in a way. But it's not the only way that these novel viruses can jump. It's true that I've been warning about pandemics for 20 years, but, but there's a dozen of us, two dozen of us, all every epidemiologist has warned that it was not a question of if, it was just a question of when. It, And we don't get any credit for warning, quite the contrary. I feel like a failure because I couldn't get people to act. So that's not a good thing, although it's really important that uh, your listeners understand that the experience that we've had with COVID, as bad as it is, is not as bad as it might be, and um, or as good as it could be. And we really need to prepare so that the, the result of the next inevitable a spillover or jump from an animal to human, the result of that is much better than the result.
result this time. One of Trump's first actions was to remove from the National Security Council an individual, in this case an admiral, who was focusing on not only uh, pandemics but also bioterrorism as potential disruptions in American life. And to remove that position from the National Security Council, even today, in retrospect, makes no sense at all. Why he did that, I can't understand. And, and the person who had created that commission that I chaired that recommended creating that position was George W. Bush, a Republican, obviously. And it has been a bipartisan agreement for as long as we can remember that bioterrorist attacks, naturally occurring pandemics, lab accidents that become major epidemics have always been bipartisan. So I, I, don't, I can't understand why Trump just ended that position. But you think that was a kind of a critical point as we look back? Yes. I mean, there's nobody now that we spend trillions of dollars that would say that this pandemic was not a national security event. It's probably the most dangerous threat to national security that we've had since the Second World War, or maybe, maybe since the Cold War. I mean, if you just think about all the knock-on effects, the deterioration of America's reputation in the world, not just the 700,000 deaths, but the effect on our hospital system of other people not being able to get into the hospital to get treated, the expenses of long COVID and what that's going to do to Medicare, to our economy, and of course, the major impact of really people losing their jobs and not being able to work for almost a year. Um, it's hard to imagine a war, a small war, <laughs> not a nuclear war, being this devastating. So this should be part of a national security agenda, and um, and taking it away from the National Security Council doesn't make any sense. There were some positive things, right? I mean, we developed a vaccine pretty quickly, but, but as far as the distribution of the vaccine around the globe, I think there's problems, right, with like COVAX. Uh, first of all, you, ha you have to say making a vaccine uh, and, and having it ready for distribution inside of a year after a brand new disease which had never existed before emerges is a triumph of science beyond imagining. And then being able to manufacture sufficient doses is yet another triumph. And uh, being able to distribute so many doses so that in the United States we've got two-thirds of our population vaccinated. And even worldwide, we've, we've got one shot in the arm of a third of the global population. The problem is that it's going to take 90% of the planet to be vaccinated really stop the forward progress of this virus and to stop the possibility that this virus will create uh, mutations and the mutations will come together as a, as a variant and that variant might indeed ping pong back and forth around the world. So that's the problem is that uh, it's, it's so difficult to export vaccine producing factories and make sure that we can produce vaccine all over the world. And then even on top of that, there aren't a lot of people who are still alive who remember how hard it was to, you know, create the smallpox eradication program, the polio eradication program in its early days. It's really difficult to create a, a global vaccination campaign that goes to the poorest, the most remote areas of the world, which is where the last cases of most disease wind up. So we have our work cut out for ourselves. It's so much better to prevent these pandemics early on at the very beginning when they first jump from an animal to a human or even better by doing surveillance while they're still in animals. We know how to do this. Many organizations are working on this. Many countries excel at this, but we've not really spent enough time, money, or devoted serious resources to it. That was part of a conversation with epidemiologist Larry Brilliant. We will continue with his reflections and thoughts about the future right after this short break. Support for HPR comes from Parker School in Waimea on Hawaii Island, committed to knowing, valuing, and nurturing each student, with a virtual open house this Saturday, October 23rd. Details and registration at parkerschoolhawaii.org. On this week's On the Media is the increasing belief in salvation through tech, just old-time religion in new bottles. 
the idea is that we'll possibly be able to upload our minds to some sort of computational substrate so that our minds will be able to exist there after we die. An exploration of gods, humans, machines, and the world-changing power of metaphor on the next On the Media from WNYC. Beginning this evening at 7, following The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. Did you happen to catch the 2011 movie Contagion? Well, the thriller takes on a new dimension as we battle this latest pandemic. In the film, actress Gwyneth Paltrow conducts a, a contracts a highly contagious disease from China. Just the trailer may have you waffling between horror and fascination as we struggle to deal with COVID-19 and the deaths as the virus spreads across the globe. We continue our conversation with epidemiologist Larry Brilliant, who is a scientific consultant on the film. I guess from where you sit, because you worked on smallpox and you saw it eradicated, I recall reading somewhere where you were just uh, taken, I think in India, where you saw the first cases of children dying from smallpox and were affected deeply. Yes, I saw and visited the last case of killer smallpox in nature, a little girl named Rahima Banu on Bola Island. Actually, it's a place a little bit like Hawaii in the Indian Ocean and Bay of Bengal, and, and her little village, Karalia Village, she was the last case of smallpox in nature, and that means that when her scabs came off and her cough, the viruses in her, and she recovered, and uh, she was no longer contagious, that was the end of an unbroken chain of transmission going back to the pharaohs, and probably before then, of smallpox, which was a, a pandemic for much of it life, its life, then it became endemic. Um, but uh, smallpox killed half a billion people in the 20th century. That's not a word, though. That was really 300 to 500 million people died, really, in the first 80 years of the 1900s. And we failed to understand how wonderful it was to be able to get the world community to agree on something and work together. And you're right. When I, I saw her on, uh, on Christmas Day, uh, 1975, I, I cried like a baby, thinking how lucky I was to have been part of that, how... Amazing it was that a competent WHO, great CDC, had led that effort. You know, it's a shame to have to, I guess, see the death of one disease and the beginning of another in a single lifetime. Well, you know, just as we look around the globe and we look at those poor countries that are trying desperately to get the vaccine, uh, you know, even for second doses for some of their healthcare workers, and yet. You know, then we see in places like Portugal where they've pretty much vaccinated all the adults that are eligible. And so the degree of hesitancy and the desire to get vaccinated, you know, just is kind of all over the map. It is. I'm so proud of Portugal. I'm very fond of it. They really did a great job. But 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 I have to say, you know, so did Israel and so did Singapore. And they've had outbreaks again. Even the U.K. had 35,000 cases, even though it did a really good job of vaccinating people. And, and the reason is, as long as there's even a sliver of uh, individuals who resist vaccination, um, this virus will find the crevasses in, uh, in our society. And it's always looking for new customers. And in Hawaii, I mean, uh, Hawaii's had its share of, of anti-vaxxers, for sure, and it's had its share of great people working on the campaign. It's, um, in a way, Hawaii's been a microcosm of the whole world, pluses and minuses. And you've been in contact with the health officials here, I know, I think on the Big Island as well, and and you see the importance of testing as one of the tools, a key tool in, in managing where we're at with this virus. I do. I mean, Hawaii's got this remarkable opportunity as an island state within the United States for a while, the Safe Hawaii, Aloha Safe programs, they kept Hawaii safe. And they did that very simply by having people who were coming to Hawaii, even before we had a vaccine, uh, get tested before they got on an airplane and, and uh, tested again when they landed um, with good PCR tests. And that identified somebody who had COVID and they had to isolate. They were not able to expose other people 
in, in the state, and it kept Hawaii safe. And then we got vaccines. You would think that adding the vaccines to the Aloha Safe program would make it safer, and for a while it did, uh, because the, the program then required you to put your, your vaccine card, proof of your vaccination, into the system. So I think for a while, Hawaii had the very best system in the entire United States, and then for reasons that still uh, befuddle me, uh, they stopped the program, and they opened up the gates of, of Hawaii to people who were not tested on arrival, and naturally, more and more cases came into Hawaii. And, and we should understand that everybody wants to come to Hawaii, <laughs> and especially in a pandemic when you can't go anyplace safe, everybody from all the states and many other countries wanted to come to Hawaii. And Hawaii was safe, but the places that people were coming from were not necessarily safe. And so people would bring their viruses from places that had epidemics right into Hawaii. And when you lowered the guardrails, like lowering the drawbridges and the vandals would come in, bringing the disease onto the island. And I, I don't understand for the life of me why that program has been stopped, even today, even though Hawaii is seeing lower cases. The, the case counts are not much different than they were uh, a year ago. It's not, you know, and, I, and I'm very proud of the folks that I've worked with on the Big Island, and they, they work really hard. But unless they can get a little help by keeping the disease out of Hawaii, then they're always fighting an uphill battle. And you've been a long-time visitor to Hawaii over many decades. You know, you know our history with Hansen's disease and, you know, our struggles uh, to deal with a contagious disease. I do. Uh, I've gone to uh, uh, Father Damien's retreat uh, several times, uh, almost like a religious pilgrimage. Not, not, not a Catholic religion necessarily, but a, I'm an epidemiologist. Uh, it's a sacred place to me. And for that reason, the heroic efforts were made to, to save people from a very bad disease. Now, I, I think that Hawaii's got an opportunity even now to be the safest place United States, if not the world. I mean, the the success stories of Taiwan and Singapore and, and New Zealand and sometimes Australia and Iceland, they've been the islands. Um, but, you know, only Hawaii is an island state of the United States, so you have that additional advantage. Uh, Hawaii should have the lowest cases in, in the country, if not in the world, if you keep vaccinating people as well as you're doing, if you keep treating people as well as you do, the love, the aloha spirit, and add to it the testing that you need to keep people from inadvertently bringing the virus onto the island. So we've really got to be vigilant. That's right. I mean, there, obviously there's a lot of politics. That I think I think for a, a while the, the tourist industry, the travel industry thought that they'd be harmed uh, by putting visitors to the cumbersome additional step of having to get tests. But, but I think they're wrong, and I think they recognize now that they're wrong. It, it's, much, it's a much better selling feature to say, come to Hawaii, we're safe. And then when you ask people to be tested and show their vaccination, they know you're serious. And, and people want to go where it's safe. And th this disease is going to ping pong back and forth around the world many times before we're done with it or they're done, the virus is done with us. I think Hawaii, even now, position itself and make itself real, not just position itself, but really make itself the safest place in the United States to be. Do you think it's safe to hold a big event like the Honolulu Marathon <laughs> or the Iron Man? <laughs> I mean, if you had kept the, the virus off the island, it would have been safe to do those things. But if there's no one stopping the virus from coming in along with the marathon runners or along with the island participants, you're going to attract the virus to the island instead of keeping it away. I, I know how hard this is. I, I mean, I know, the, I know the political pressure. I know the angry letters. I know, I know this is uh, it's easy enough for me to say I'm an epidemiologist living in San Francisco. But really, if we want Hawaii to be safe, to be able to do everything that that uh, wonderful people in Hawaii want to do, I think you have to go back to what worked in the past, which is exclude the virus from the island, invite everybody to come, 
but require them to leave their virus behind them. So come vaccinated. Come vaccinated and get tested. Yes. Because even if you're vaccinated, you might be carrying the virus. Anything else that you would share with the powers that be? They're making these decisions and trying to trying to weigh the risk. Yeah, I would. I would say that I I, I come to uh, mostly Maui and the Big Island, but I've been to all the islands. I, I often hear people knock the health department. I don't know why. Uh, the health department does a really good job, and these public health people. You're, you know, we've been we've been thanking the first responders and reminding ourselves of how hard they worked during this pandemic. It, it, that's true in Hawaii, too. I know emergency room doctors and uh, physicians on the front line who had to watch people die, not able to be reunited with their families because it was in the middle of COVID. It's been really hard on the health department, and they're, they, they're really a good group of people, and they're trying really hard, but uh, not, to, you know, not to keep on uh, sounding... Uh, Johnny, one note, if you don't stop the importations of the disease, uh, it's impossible for the health department to, after the fact, um, make up for the, the, the open door to the virus. We, we have to stop the virus. Not, not people, not tourists. Invite them, but stop the virus from landing in Hawaii. And that'll give the health department all that it needs, the space that it needs to make make the island safe. That was epidemiologist Larry Brilliant, who we spoke with last week, a longtime visitor to Hawaii. He's been working with officials on the Big Island as the county tries to contain the COVID cases. Brilliant was with the World Health Organization, helping to end the smallpox epidemic. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. The University of Hawaii will honor its former quarterback, Colt Brennan, at this Saturday's home game against New Mexico State. Brennan was a record-setting starter for three seasons, leading the Rainbow Warriors to a 12-1 record and the 2007 Sugar Bowl in his senior year. Earlier this month, he was also inducted into the school's sports circle of honor as part of its 2021 class. Also honored there is the first UH player to earn All-America honors. He did that in 1935 as a running back for the Rainbows. His number 32 jersey was retired by the school and to this day is the only number to be retired in the program's history. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of the legendary player who wore that number? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. On our reality check today, Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Thomas Heaton has a piece on the island nation of Palau, one of our Pacific neighbors. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Kathleen. So the story that you wrote, I mean, it's a scenario that's playing out uh, across across the Pacific, I'm sure, even in your, your native uh, New Zealand. Yes, it certainly is, I think, across the Pacific. In, in fact, across the world, food security is an issue that... Um, is, is at the front of people's minds. And so what is Palau doing? 
So Palau is currently working on its first organic policy. It is um, two or th third, fourth or fifth on the list of countries um, in the Pacific who are recognising that organic agriculture is perhaps a means to address food security issues, um, particularly in light of the fact that many of these nations, um, Palau specifically, imports um, 80 to 90 percent of its food from overseas. So of course during the pandemic that was laid bare because at the best of times um, going to supermarkets, that kind of thing, you might find that the staples that you expect to be able to cook every day or you know cook every couple of days are not always there. So of course during the pandemic when supply chains were interrupted that was really an issue that um, came to came to pass um so yeah and palau you know didn't import all this food at one time yes so um this was something very interesting you know um previously when palau was governed by japan it grew enough to be able to both feed itself and export. So, of course, you know, the, those crops being exported were sugarcane and copra, um, dried coconut. Um, but people from the Organic Growers Society in um, Palau believe that, of course, looking, in the, looking to the past, such as Japan, looking to traditions for growing um, food, uh, which is inherently organic, is a great way to move forward. So they're currently surveying the entire country to see what's being grown, what can be grown, and how they can move forward. Because, of course, we've learnt from many stories in the past that if you grow or if you invest in one thing, then the dangers increase. But if you spread your investment widely, you're a bit more secure and more resilient to seasonal disasters, to um, diseases in the plants uh, and crops and that kind of thing. And, you know, like Hawaii, uh, Palau used to grow a lot of taro. Yes, yes. Well, taro continues to be grown, but it's more on a um, feed-the-family kind of basis. So now what they're really trying to do is they're trying to invest... Um, they're trying to incentivize for farmers to start their own businesses and start feeding more than just the family or their local community or direct community and start growing enough to be able to supply the tourism industry, um, which, of course, Palau relies on a lot too. And, yeah, so in order to make it more attractive for the, the, you know, the young farmers to get into this, uh, I mean, they've got to really change the mindset. Yes, so it, it involves a lot of that kind of thing. Um, more recently, they have introduced tax reforms. Uh, Palau previously didn't have much in the way of tax, but these tax reforms are really kind of balancing the weight between imported goods, which might be cheaper, um, to balancing the weight so that um, the, the farmers are able to actually compete in the market and customers are going to be able to get locally grown stuff without the massive price. And so then this move to uh, encourage more organic farms, that's, the, that's high on the agenda now. Yes, it's really high on the agenda. Uh, the policies are being um, finished and they'll go in front of um, the powers that be who will you know, go over it. And hopefully they are, uh, the Palau Organic Growers Society are hoping, hoping that it will all be signed by uh, early next year and they can really start moving on it by mid next year. All right. Well, interesting story. Thanks so much, Thomas. Thanks so much, Catherine. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Did you know that four women a day are diagnosed with breast cancer in Hawaii? That's according to the local nonprofit Breast Cancer Hawaii. It's an organization that President Joanne Hayashi founded in 2016 to help reduce the information overwhelm that she experienced after being diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer at the age of 33. The Conversations Lillian Sung sat down with Hayashi to learn about a new project that emerged during this pandemic. It is called the Care Closet. Care stands for Community Access to Reusable Equipment. What we do is we collect new and gently used support 
items such as wigs, wedge pillows, breast prosthesis, books, hobby supplies even, and we connect them to patients in treatment. And the reason that that all started was because I myself used a wedge pillow during my treatment. So during chemotherapy, there's a lot of lying in your bed to rest and recover. You know, the wedge pillow is very helpful in propping yourself up. And then when you're recovering from surgery, it's helpful, but it's not covered by insurance and it can cost upwards of $100 or even more. And so I only used it for a few weeks, seemed wasteful to throw it away. So I'd been sitting in my room and then a friend got diagnosed with breast cancer and I let her borrow it. She only used it for a couple of weeks, so it came back to me, and then I let someone else use it. And then we started to receive calls to our office about people wanting to donate wigs that they maybe purchased but ended up not using or only used for a short period of time. And we, at that time, had no mechanism to collect them and then connect them back to others. And so we finally decided that since we couldn't find another organization that was collecting specifically these items to specifically help the cancer patients that maybe we might start it ourselves. We really only got it going during the pandemic because we stopped doing our in-person programming and we were looking at other ideas that we could do in a socially distant safe way. And the care closet, since it requires very little interaction person to person, so It was launched during the pandemic with the help of interns that I recruited during the pandemic. And so Chinatsu helped us with the video. Haley from the University of Hawaii Scheidler Business School helped us develop all of the marketing research, the framework procedures so that we could get this rolling. And then we were able to get a grant from the Women's Fund of Hawaii and the Kachola Medical Clinic so that we could actually rent out a storage space, clean any of the gently used items, and then mail requested items. And so it was really kind of an effort of many people, many organizations uh, that helped us launch this. It is a wonderful clearinghouse in a sense. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that really resonates for me because my dad was in home hospice. We bought a lot of pillows and air mattress, durable medical equipment, but like you said, not covered by insurance. So we ended up with you know, Mm -hmm. things that we had accumulated for dad's care. And so Mm -hmm. similarly in the sense of you you want to take care of your loved one and so you're getting all this gear, Mm -hmm. but then eventually coming to a point where all this health equipment gets put away into storage, but it's really still in prime condition. So you have people reaching out to you at Breast Cancer Hawaii saying, I have wigs, I have prosthesis, equipment that I want others to benefit from. And so it was you recognizing that there is this supply and there's also for you, you're able to connect them with the demand, you became this clearinghouse, the care closet. Right, exactly. When we did the market research for this, we surveyed about 100 cancer patients and came out to an average of almost $900 that people were spending out of pocket for, for these different items, you know. And so since there were people that were housing them in their homes, just sitting there waiting to be used, why not reutilize those items so that people could spend that $900 out of pocket on other things Mm. that they might need for their cancer treatment. So yeah, that was the genesis of the program. Wonderful that you're able Mm -hmm. to identify that. And $900, that's quite a bit of money. It is, it adds up. I mean, some of these wigs can be very costly. Even breast prosthesis, People don't realize that it could get very hot and uncomfortable. So instead of spending several hundred dollars to buy a fancy one, maybe try one out before you do, you know, and the care closet can definitely help with that. What sort of furniture would somebody be able to request? So right now the furniture that we have is a shower chair. So the shower chair helped me out a lot, especially during chemo, because I was just very weakened by the treatment. And so for safety, I had used a shower chair. We also have a wheelchair that somebody donated. Oh, this is wonderful to know, Joanne, Mm -hmm. because 
there are some things that would cross over because I did not know what to do with our shower chairs. Right. So if it were gently used, if it's something that, you know, you guys over at the care closet could utilize. Do you have a wish list going? Yeah, so definitely the wigs and wedge pillows, lymphedema sleeves, but those do need to be more on the new side than the gently used side because the, the elasticity still needs to be there. The shower chairs are very convenient that people don't realize that cancer patients can use. And the tables on wheels that kind of swing over a, a bed so that patients can eat or use their laptop. Definitely care closet is a positive outcome of the whole mm-hmm. COVID pandemic that we have all gone through. So thank you for sharing your story with us. Sure. And Joanne, I understand that you guys just launched a new program last week. Tell me about that. So Breast Cancer Hawaii, our organization, we serve breast cancer patients of all ages and stages, and we connect them with resources and support. We've had difficulty connecting the younger patients with resources and support because they do face unique challenges. You know, there are mothers of young children that are having to go through chemotherapy. What did they do for childcare? How did they explain their diagnosis to their children? While there are national resources, we've had difficulty finding local resources and support for them. And then we decided to launch a new program called Hearts for Ohana, stands for Hope, Encouragement, activities, resources, trust, and support, specifically geared toward patients who have children under the age of 18. We have an online directory of family therapists that are currently taking new patients that have experience working with cancer patients, so that's live on our site. And then finally, we received a grant from the city and county to implement a family retreat in the summer of 2022. So coming up and we're really excited about that. Talking with you right now, Joanne, I'm feeling that there's a wonderful group of people you are surrounded with. Mm -hmm. What is some advice we give for somebody who might be starting their own breast cancer diagnosis journey? I think in the beginning, it's just very scary and overwhelming. One thing that I had to overcome was this feeling that perhaps I was the only 30-something-year-old with breast cancer, but there are people out there. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. You know, one in eight women in the U.S. eventually develop breast cancer, and 10 to 15% of those newly diagnosed women are women under the age of 40. Even men can get breast cancer, so definitely don't feel alone. And don't try to go through this alone either. Even if you don't have immediate friends and family members that have gone through it, there are definitely people that have. And so I would encourage you to see connection. It really was uplifting for me to see somebody who was similar in age and diagnosis that was a year out from her treatment. And I saw her living her life after cancer. And that gave me a goal, you know to help me get through treatment. So you can definitely reach out to us at Breast Cancer Hawaii and we can connect you with many of the support circles that are out there. We ourselves offer peer support to help you with your questions and concerns that you have during treatment. And if people are offering food, if people are offering rides to the doctor's office, now is the time to lean on them for support. I mean, this is not the time to try to take on things yourself. There are people who tell me, oh, you know, but I feel bad, you know, asking them for help, this and that. But, you know, I I would challenge you to envision if you were in their shoes, you know, if your friend or if your family member had a cancer diagnosis and was, you know, facing a life-threatening illness, wouldn't you do everything in your power to give them comfort, to give them support? In that same way, you know, let others help you and support you through this. We've been talking with Breast Cancer Hawaii co-founder Joanne Hayashi. We'll share links where you can find out more about programs like The Care Closet and Hearts for Ohana, as well as peer support groups. You can find them on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to tell us why Jupiter's moon, Europa, has those looking for life beyond Earth very excited. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, we are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers, Venus can be seen in the west shortly after sunset, with Jupiter and Saturn visible in the southern and eastern skies. The moon this week is passing through its full phase, and so stargazing for those faint objects in the sky is going to be quite challenging. And one of those won't be the moon Europa, but you've got a report on that, huh? Indeed. We once again return to Jupiter and its fascinating moon Europa. This icy moon is at the center of our efforts to look for life beyond Earth, since evidence suggests that under the mile-thick sheet of ice that covers the moon's surface is a saltwater ocean, very similar to those here on the Earth. Now, if that wasn't enough to whet the appetites of eager alien hunters around the world, astronomers using data from the Hubble Space Telescope have now confirmed the presence of water vapor in the atmosphere of Europa. And talk a little bit about that, because that's a surprise, right? We didn't think it had an atmosphere. It is surprising, yeah. Europa does have an atmosphere, but it's incredibly thin, and there's nothing really of interest to astrobiologists until now. However, this new discovery adds to a growing body of evidence to suggest that Europa could indeed be more habitable than we suspected. This is the second time water vapor's been discovered on a Jupiter moon? It is indeed. The first time was around Ganymede, Jupiter's largest moon. And again, there's evidence to suggest that even there, there is a subsurface body of water. However, Ganymede is far rockier than Europa. Does that mean, Chris, Um, we got a plan on bringing uh, swim gear when we head there? (laughs) Only if you wrap up. (laughs) The temperature on the surface is minus one. 170 degrees Celsius. (laughs) Will be a refreshing dip. (laughs) Indeed. And any missions uh, in the works? Yes. A European mission called JUICE, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, is expected to launch next year. Its science focus will be to study the moons of Jupiter and determine their habitability. JUICE will be packing the most advanced scientific payload ever deployed in the outer solar system, so it's sure to surprise us. And NASA, not to be outdone of course, also has a mission planned called the Europa Clipper, which will launch sometime in 2024. We'll hear about it here on Stargazer with you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name the player who wore the only number to be retired in University of Hawaii football history. This player was born in Kalihi in 1913, but grew up on the Big Island, where he graduated from Hilo High School in 1932. While playing football at UH from 1934 to 1937, the 5'5", 140-pound running back was given the nickname Grass Shack. As a standout college athlete, he earned 17 letters in five sports and was the first UH football player to earn All-America honors. He was brought in as the Rainbow's head coach in the 1940s and took over the reins of Iolani School in the 1960s. He was the driving force behind bringing the Pop Warner Youth Football Program to Hawaii and among the inaugural class inducted into the UH Sports Circle of Honor in 1982. If you are a diehard UH football fan, then you know we are talking about Tom Kaulukukui, the answer to today's backyard quiz. And congrats to Mike from Kaimuki. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Air Cargo, committed to connecting the Hawaiian Islands by providing inter-island shipping with cargo services, including Aloha Next Flight Out and Aloha Standard Overnight. AlohaAirCargo.com.
addiction to opioids, alcohol, or other illegal drugs is a major problem right here in the islands. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about the real-life struggles of rehabilitation and the path to recovery. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. The habitat for one native species is expanding on Oahu's North Shore thanks to conservation efforts. HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us with a story about a growing albatross colony. Good morning, Casey. Morning, yes. Uh, So the North Shore Community Land Trust has been, for the past seven years, uh, restoring about 35 acres of land up on the North Shore, uh, Kahuku Point, right next to Turtle Bay Resort. Uh, It is filled with life out there. Uh, Nesting green sea turtles, monk seals use it to pup, and also the endangered yellow-faced bee, uh, a native (laughs) bee here in Hawaii, um, also calls that place home. And so now, due to the efforts of restoring this habitat, albatross are back uh, in Kahuku, uh, outside of the James Campbell Bird Refuge and also Ka'ena Point. So kind of a nice in-between location for these albatrosses. Uh, back in 2017, they say they uh, found roughly three nests of uh, Lazan albatrosses. And if you're familiar with Lazan albatrosses, um, it is like Wisdom, the albatross, that is yes. the most popular one. Uh, today, that's closer to 20 nests, and they're hoping for a lot more. Yeah, Wisdom was the oldest uh, uh, albatross to be giving, be laying eggs and giving birth. Yeah, exactly. So these uh, albatrosses are... Uh, they have a long lifespan, and hopefully uh, they can uh, thrive up in Kohuku Point. Uh, but efforts like these, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who uh, partnered with the North Shore Community Land Trust, as well as you know State DLNR and UH and a bunch of other partners, uh, are saying that partnerships like this and efforts like this are very important for uh, albatrosses and also for nesting grease sea turtles and a bunch of other native species up there. Uh, that you can find here in Hawaii as well. Uh, And that's primarily because for albatrosses, uh, there are a lot of threats uh, that they face, uh, one of them being predators like rats and cats and mongoose and everything else that you would think of. Also, there's a lot of um, human fishing activities uh, that the albatross uh, get caught in or drown in, and it's, it's kind of sad. But also, uh, climate change and rising sea levels, because those are uh, one of the, the big things uh, that is affecting these uh, colonies up in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And Beth Flint, uh, who is a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, says um, these uh, habitats are being lost uh, year after year and due to climate change and also rising sea level. We've lost, more importantly, actual land area that provides nest sites for birds. Hurricane Walaka back in 2018 completely obliterated an entire nesting island, East Island at French Frigate Shoals, and it took out nest sites for 2,500 albatrosses, albatrosses that are tied to that site and can never go back there because even though the bar, the sand is starting to reform and there's a bit of an island there again, during the winter, it's a wash. Albatrosses are winter breeders, so that place, at least for the time being, is completely lost to those birds. And so it kind of uh, reemphasizes the urgency of some of these uh, efforts that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has. Um, You may have heard of uh, these translocation projects that they do. They bring in chicks uh, at a certain age and also eggs from the northwestern Hawaiian Islands and relocate them to uh, the North Shore and Kauai and other islands as well. uh, Because at a certain point, uh, these birds have a look up at the stars and have like some sort of geolocation imprint in their mind that they call home. So if they get them uh, to another site at an early age, then hopefully the hope is that they can have that imprint of calling the North Shore or wherever they are home. Yeah, I had the opportunity to go up to the Campbell and, uh, uh, Wildlife Refuge and saw them actually bring in some of these babies. And it's amazing the work they do. They have to hand feed these babies, you know, uh, like a fish milkshake to keep them thriving. Yeah, exactly. And also they have uh, these uh, kind of surrogates in a way of like placing the egg in a nest and having other birds kind of raise them as well. Uh, but um, Beth says that 
it's kind of difficult to determine whether or not this is successful because it takes years for these birds to kind of come back to what where they call home and find a mate and f- raise their chicks there. But these efforts that restoring uh, habitat that's very crucial to um, the albatross future uh, isn't that all that difficult. And Sheldon Plentovich, who is the Fish and Wildlife Service's uh, Pacific Islands Coastal Program Coordinator, Basically, what she does is she uh, is a liaison to all these uh, partnerships, not only uh, for community, but also the federal government and all these other uh, agencies throughout the Pacific. And she says uh, it's not that difficult. It's not impossible or even all that difficult to restore nesting seabird habitat. We just have to do the right things. And that is control of invasive mammals like mongooses and cats and rats and habitat restoration, you know, restore areas that are dominated by invasive species like ironwood and restore those with coastal strand species that were there and are are native and sometimes endemic to those areas. And the North Shore Community Land Trust has a standing community event because it's all community driven to restore Kahuku Point. Uh, They hold an event every second Saturday of the month, and more information is at northshoreland.org. All right. Interesting story. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking with HBR reporter Casey Harlow. To read his stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's a wrap for us today. Tomorrow we hear about efforts to restore Kona as an international hub. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Uh, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.